We have spent our Christmas season for several weeks here in the month of December, a study here in Isaiah chapter 8, and spilling a little into chapter number 9, the light that shines in darkness. So I'm going to read to you from verse 8, 19, rather, all the way through the end of the chapter, and into the first two verses of chapter number 9. Isaiah 8, starting in verse number 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will press through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. But in the later times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. Heavenly Father, with your word in front of us today, and our hearts and attention to what it says, we ask that you bless our time as we learn more about you and about us and about what you have done to save us. Draw our hearts to yourself, we pray today. Challenge us thoroughly. Stir us deeply. May we come from this place today even with greater appreciation for what you have done. Thank you for your word and for our time in it now. In Jesus' name, amen. To speak about darkness is typically not the Christmas message. (laughs) We talk about a lot of other things at Christmas time. And we have focused on the darkness here, especially in chapter 9, verse 2. Where Isaiah writes, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. They are in darkness because they have rejected. They've rejected their God. They've rejected his word. They've rejected his peace. They have rejected his perspective. We're going to speak about his perspective today. As we contemplate the reason for darkness here. Now darkness is the product of the fact that they rejected. Righteousness is a very interesting verse in Psalm 97. Righteousness uh, is the result of light being scattered like seed. It's an interesting little verse uh, we read this morning. Light is, sh- is sown like seed for the righteous. So that God is sp- 
spread it out there for us to see. And yet, that is what God's righteousness does. It presents what's true, what's right. When you reject all that, what's left? Darkness. These folks we read about in Isaiah chapter 8, chapter number 9, we might pity them a little. We might pity them a little. But they bought it themselves. Their darkness was because they had rejected their God. And they had rejected His Word. He set before them the things for peace, and they rejected that as well. You see, all the way through this passage, Isaiah sets up the reality. Mankind rejects God every time. They walk that way. If we're given our option, guess which way we're going? Away from God. And that's what he sets before us here. Isaiah is the same one who said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. These folks, just to give you the background, just a context here for a minute. They thought that they could substitute for God. They brought in idols. That's a poor substitute. (laughs) But they worshipped the idols. When they didn't get direction from the idols, they said, well, we've got to get some truth. So they went to the spiritists. They went to the fortune tellers. They went to the witches of their land in order to get a message. They needed a message. We saw that in verse 19. It's because they rejected God that they had no message. And then they rejected His Word when it, the suggestion came in verse 20. Why don't you go to the source? Why don't you go to what God has given to you? And instead they turned their back on it. And He says, well, that's why you have no dawn. And then they start to wonder, so why are we in anguish? Why are we hard-pressed? Why are we famished? Verse number 21 says, Why are we hungry? Why are we angry? Because we don't know His peace. Now we come down to verse 22. Look at it with me here. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. You see, when they rejected God, it would have been easy, perhaps, for God to say, well, then just let him go. But he didn't do that, did he? As we see in verse number 2 of chapter 9, it was God who initiated the light. They were not seeking the light. The people were walking in darkness. They were living in a dark land. It was God who turned on the lights. It was his initiation to come to a people that had rejected him. To shine the light on them. I'm so glad for His mercy, aren't you? When they had rejected His word, it was God's persistence and God's faithfulness to send His prophets and to send His apostles and to send these folks who wrote and wrote and wrote the text you're holding today in your hand. God did not quit. Even though we turn our back from it, even though we don't turn to it, I'm not going to start that sermon again. We all went away uncomfortable, didn't we? We have God's Word, folks. We have God's Word in our hands. Let's not be like these folks who rejected it. Walked away from it. God is persistent, though. Isn't He? God is so faithful to meet our needs. They rejected His peace. 
So they knew anguish. So they knew anger. So they knew hunger. So they knew what it meant to be distressed and pressed down. And God saw their misery. That's a beautiful thing He's done for us. He sees us in our helplessness. He knows that we live there. He knows that we walk there. And He was kind enough to send the light. That's what we needed. That's what we've seen so far. Today, verse number 22, they rejected God's perspective as well. And that's really the result that comes from it all. They don't see it God's way. How could they? They don't walk with Him. They don't read His Word. They rejected His peace. And so what's the byproduct of all that? A distorted view of things. Because they're trying to see it their way and not His way. As a result, they rejected His perspective. And the beautiful thing is that God knows that. And He has met the need. He has met the need. I am still in awe of what God has done for men living in darkness. What God has done for us. He brought the truth of the light to us even though we had rejected it. He persisted in it even though we had rejected it. He was merciful in it even though we rejected it. He shines that light to meet our need. Even though we reject His ways. You see, it's easy perhaps on a morning like this to bring up a message that's soft, tolerant. You know how we are in our day and age, don't we? We get upset over Christmas songs now. We can, we can just bring you something comforting, something light, something traditional, something socially acceptable, politically sensitive, or publicly careful. We, we can do all that. There was a message I heard back in 1983. It's interesting how it made an impact on me with just one paragraph that was said in that message. Is that Moody? Bible Institute Founders Week, and every year in February, uh, for a whole week, they have some of the the most pronounced speakers of our day come and speak to us as students, and it was a phenomenal thing to listen to them. Got to hear men like Francis Schaeffer and others just come in and speak, and it was amazing for a student to look, you know, these are the guys, you're reading their books, you're like, ah, there he is, you know, it's always kind of exciting, but... But it was every other year that Chuck Swindoll came and spoke. And we always thought that was a favorite for us. We enjoyed his speaking. He had a great sense of humor. And I always say had. That don't, don't make me think we just buried the guy. Okay, he's still out there. All right. But this is what he wrote, or this is what he said. He was quoting from a man named Wilbur Reese. And this statement stunned us. This is how he started his sermon. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my peace, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. I'll take that plastic Christ, please. No, not the flesh and blood one. He's a dirty little Jew that smells of a barn. 
He will keep me from my appointments with the hairdresser. He will make me late for the cocktail party. He will soil my linen and break my strand of matched pearls. I can't put up with the repugnance of Persia or sweaty shepherds traveling all over my nylon carpets with their muddy feet. My name isn't Mary. I don't want a living, breathing Christ, but just one I could keep in his crib with a rubber band. That plastic one would do just fine. Does that get your attention? You say, well, that's quite a statement to make. Consider another statement that was made by Jesus himself. He said this, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's a startling statement made by Jesus Christ, because there is no comfortable middle. There is no comfortable middle in what he just said. Here's the fact. Truth is not meant to make you comfortable. It's meant to make you godly. Light is not meant simply to warm you. It is revealing. It exposes who you are. It exposes what you are. God's Word is described as a directing light. It's a light to your path and to your feet. It cuts deeply, it says, and accurately into the core of man. Hebrews 4.12, you've heard before. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Does that jar you? Just to think it through? There are those who live in sin, Scripture says. Those who dwell in darkness. They're unaccustomed to the light. They resist the light. They reject the light. They have that response that all of us do. At two in the morning when somebody walks in the room and clicks on the overhead light. Your first thought is, how nice of you. That's the world living in darkness when the light shines. God did not mean to leave them comfortable. He wanted them to see reality. He wanted them to see who they are and what they are. This passage says that simple thing. They live in darkness. They walk in darkness. And John would write this in his great gospel, chapter 3. You know verse 16. If you move down to verse 19 and verse 20, this is what he says. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, 
And men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The only time I, I note, the only time I've seen, I keep looking because I'm hoping to find another one, but the only time I've ever seen the word agape in its verb form used in a negative sense. Men loved the darkness. That's a powerful phrase. For everyone who does evil hates the light, John says. Hates the light. How much stronger can we make such a word? Hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, the light reveals, doesn't it? It's meant to show the way. It's meant to show the path. It's meant to help those who are in misery, those who have no clue where to go, those who have no hope, those who have no peace. It's meant to show them the right perspective. That's what light does. It says, this is the way. If this room suddenly went dark, We've got some emergency lights out there that are meant to turn on. We don't use them enough, do we? We don't need to, thankfully. But they're meant to pop on when something goes wrong so we could see to get out of the building. God has shown His light to those who need it. You see? It's interesting how man rejects it, turns his way from it. Now, I began with these statements here this morning, like you probably have sensed already. I don't mean to make you comfortable. I really don't. Because there's no middle between the path of destruction and the path to life. You're either on one of those paths or you're on the other. Because you cannot be on both and you cannot be on neither. You cannot sit between life and death. You are either one or you're the other. Jesus said there is one path that leads to life. One path. The claims of Christ right there before you. One path. He said himself, I am the way, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then he made this statement. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's it. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? Jesus did not say that and did not mean for you to think that he was just another option for you to consider. His statement is what we call emphatic. According to Greek grammar, the first two words are ego and me. Ego me. I myself am the way. That simply says there's no one else who can claim it. I myself. Me. Only me, Jesus said. I am the way. I myself am the truth. I myself am the life. That's pretty bold. That's pretty clear. You see, I said it's emphatic. You can underline that passage 
in John 14. You can underline it, and you can make it bold, and you can put several exclamation points after it, and you will never exceed what he's trying to express. You will never overdo it by marking it. I am the way, Jesus said. That's it. The only way. The only way. When we speak of the Christmas message, we we go to Luke chapter 2. We read of the shepherd's story. I love the shepherd's story, don't you? Beautiful, wonderful story. Angels appeared to them, light in the darkness, all that. I try to put myself in their sandals and say, what was that like? It's fun to, to just think about that chapter. We could talk about the angels. We could talk about Mary and Joseph. We could add Matthew 2 and you have Herod there. You could have the wise men coming in saying, where is he who's born king of the Jews? We can read those stories as well. And, and we could speak of Bethlehem and we could speak of mangers and we could speak of gold and frankincense and myrrh and all that. But I like to go to Isaiah. And I especially like that because this is the context of the message of this day. Isaiah chapter 9, that same section we're in, verse number For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You see, he was the answer to the need. The need, you may say, okay, what was the need? Well, They didn't have God. They didn't have His Word. They didn't have His peace. They didn't have His perspective. You say, was that the need? No. Those were the products of the need. The need was, they had rejected Him. Jesus was the answer to their rejection. You see? He is the one who was sent to answer their greatest need. Anytime, folks, you turn away from God, you walk into darkness. That's all there is to it. You turn away from His mercy. You turn away from His His law. You turn away from His word. You turn away from His way. There is no other path. It's darkness. It's darkness. And that's why in chapter 9, it begins with these words in Isaiah. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. You start to sense that the, the, the music has turned from a minor to a major key. He at one time treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but he shall make it glorious now in the way of the sea. How is that going to happen? What, what is these things? We don't know what a Zebulon is. What's a Naphtali? Those are the territories of Galilee. Where did Jesus live? He lived in Galilee. The same place where the darkness was. That's where he went. He walked all over their territory. He went into their cities. He proclaimed the truth to them in their synagogues. He healed people in their towns. They had the message of the light in a dark place. He went right to where the source was of rejection. And what did they do? 
What did they do? They rejected him still. He came unto his own, and his own would not receive him. In one place, they wanted to throw him off a cliff and stone him to death. In another place, they said, go away, we don't want you here. He says, a prophet's not heard in his own town. He even went on farther to say that if the miracles done in Sodom and Gomorrah were the same that he'd done in places like Capernaum, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. That says a lot, doesn't it? His own people he went to, though they rejected him. God says, we're going to make this different. They walk in darkness. They see the great light. They live in that land of darkness, and that light will shine on them. God initiated what they needed. Even in their resistance, even in their rebellion, He persisted in shining the light. Because that's what they needed. The pattern of rejection is all over Scripture. I want to show you something, just so you know this isn't new, but God and His people. In Psalm 95, Psalm 95, there's a beautiful set of psalms here in the end. Matter of fact, one of our great Christmas songs comes from this section, uh, from Psalm 95, 6, 97, 98. It's called Joy to the World. Well, here, Psalm 95 starts off in such a beautiful way. It says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, isn't He? Yes! Isn't this exciting? He's a great King above all the gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea belongs to Him. It is He who made it, and His hands form the dry ground. So come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. And you say, okay, that's what we should do. But the psalmist isn't done. He says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Isn't that a strange thing to add to such a beautiful song? If you hear His voice, if, I mean everything out in the world is yelling His name. The oceans, the mountains, the trees, everything is out there proclaiming how great He is. Can you hear Him? If you hear Him, do not harden your heart. Interesting. There are those who know what the gospel message is. They know that who God is. They know the facts of Him. But they still hardened their hearts. That was His people. They had seen the evidence of the living God among them every single day. They walked through the wilderness. The pillar of fire at night. The pillar of cloud by day. Manna, fresh in the morning, six days a week. Can you beat that? Would you like that? They had the evidence of God with them every single day they wandered in the wilderness. Every single day. And this is what the psalmist says. Do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. 
in the days of Massa in the wilderness. He brings out a couple of particular towns where they grumbled the most. Where they doubted God. They said, you brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? They rejected him. They rejected his way. They rejected his peace. They rejected his provision. And they turned their faces upward in anger toward him. Hard to believe they did it. But he says they had hard hearts. They had hard hearts. He says, this is when your fathers tested me. And they tried me. Though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. What a word. If we could say it this way, and, and it's, God never sleeps, but we say it this way. Every morning he got up, he looked over and said, oh, they're still here. You can almost picture it, can't you? Every single day for 40 years, he loathed them. That's powerful words. God says, you tested me every single moment you took a breath. And said, they are a people who err in their hearts. And here's a, here's a phrase I bring you to. Verse number 10 says, And they do not know my ways. They do not know my ways. They will not come into their rest. That's the way he ends it. You say, Pastor, that's a dark verse. That's a dark way to go through that chapter. Yeah, that's the reality. God has not changed, folks. Who he is has not changed. What he's done has not changed. His love for you does not change. His faithfulness does not change. It's our hard hearts. Our stubborn ways. We refuse his way. The only other way out is darkness. That's what it is. And you say, okay, that's Old Testament. Okay, That's just Old Testament. Do you know what? It's almost quoted entirely in Hebrews chapter 3. Same passage, same passage, I've got to read this to you. Just a couple of verses from Hebrews 3. Listen, alright? Starts this way in the chapter. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was to all his house. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has much more honor than the house does. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confession, and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As when they provoked me in the days of trial in the wilderness, when the fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They're always going astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there is not anyone among you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day by day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's a powerful little passage. Does it kind of rock you a little bit when you read it, hear it? It all comes down to the same thing. When we harden our hearts and close our ears, we've rejected the Lord. We've rejected His presence. We've rejected His word. We've rejected His peace. We've rejected His ways. We're making up our own ways now. And there is a way that seems right unto a man. And where does it lead? Scripture says it leads to death. It leads to death. You want to see how one enters darkness? How do they end up on the path of destruction in the first place? They reject the God who made them. They reject the word to direct them. They reject the peace that made them whole. And they reject the way to save them. They've rejected him. Those who have rejected him have only one perspective. I showed you Isaiah 9.22. I take you right back to it. and Look at it very carefully. This is the one view before them. They look to the earth. They look to the earth. They don't look to God. They don't look to His Word. They don't look to His peace. They don't look to His way. They look to the earth. What a terrible thing to do. Folks, the earth, the earth cannot save you. The earth cannot save you. It's passing away, Scripture says. It's passing away with all its lusts. It will be destroyed someday with intense heat. This globe of dirt and water, this spinning sphere that we live on, this sinful planet full of those who happily tread down this path of destruction, they doubt that God is real, they read His truth and consider it invalid, they reject His way because they don't think it's real, and this earth and its system is passing away, and those who look to it will go with it. That's where they've looked. It cannot save you. It says instead it brings distress. It brings darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. What's up? What's up, Pastor? Are you mad at us today? No. Don't harden your hearts, folks. Don't harden your hearts. God is not content to leave you in darkness. That's the message of the Christmas season. He's not content to leave you there. He initiated the whole thing by sending His Son, didn't He? That's why He came. Because we people walk in darkness. We people live in darkness. And it's God who showed the light. 
God who shined it on us. When I read this story in Isaiah chapter 8, I said, that could be me. That could be you. People who settle for darkness. Would you go another Christmas season without hearing the truth? Would you go by another season without understanding the reason why God sent His Son? See, this is the great news. <laughs> this is what the angel said. Behold, I bring you great news, a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a system? No. A strategy? No. A cure for cancer? No. A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Why did he send us a Savior? A Savior is someone who saves. Does that sound too elementary? I'll make it even easier if you need it. A Savior is one who saves. He saves those who need saved. That's his job. To save those who need saved. If you're on the path of destruction, you need to be saved. Because the end is death. If you aren't saved, then you need a Savior. We have one. We have a Savior. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way I present to you. There's no other Savior I offer to you. I don't give you an option among three to choose. You can't say I'll take the third one. Or the first, second one. Because there's only one. There's one Savior. There's one way. That's God's way. There's one truth. There's one life. That's Jesus Christ. That's the only Savior I present to you today. Because if you're on that path of destruction, you need to hear the truth. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't reject what you're hearing right now. There's no other way to present to you. There's no other truth. There's no other life. There's no substitute for Jesus Christ. None. There are no replicas. There's no plastic saviors to pin into a crib with a rubber band. Either you have all of Christ or you have none of him. You understand that? You can't be kind of saved. Every now and then I think, you know, it's been a rough day. I just have a, a touch of rigor mortis. You can't kind of be dead. You can't kind of be saved. You're either on the right path or you're on the wrong one. You either have life or you don't. You can't have both and you can't have neither. For you are one or the other. And I'm intensely concerned about this this morning. Because there is no middle way, folks. There's no middle way between life and death. There's no middle way between the path of destruction and the path of life. You're either on one or the other because you can't be on both. You can't be on both. So I'm pleading with you. Have you sensed it? I'm pleading with you today to again look at the claims of Christ. Do you know Him 
to be your Savior. That's why He came. Do you know Him to be your Savior? If He is not, today is the day. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. What Paul said was very interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, in working together with Him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For as He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and at the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The light has shone. The light has shone. You are a recipient of the truth. Now it comes to your response, doesn't it? It comes to your response to God's way, to God's truth, to God's Son. Do you know Him? I don't want you to leave this place unless you do. I don't know how to trap you in here. I just pray that the Holy Spirit will convict your heart, because I can't change it. I could present the truth, and it's up to God to change a heart. I could lay it all before you, and you might take of it, and you might walk away from it. You might just harden your heart. You might just reject it. You might say, I think my way is doing pretty good. I hate to tell you this, but it will never work. That's reality of what I present to you today. I didn't mean to leave you comfortable with it. I want you to consider the claims of Christ and know that He is the only answer to every need of man. He's the only answer to life. Do you know Him? We're going into prayer. and You could talk to Him right now. You want to receive Christ as Savior. What a better, what better day is there than today to do that? Talk to Him right now and say, Lord, I'm in darkness. I know it. Today I want, I want that to be different. I receive you as my Savior. Talk to him about that. Would you? Heavenly Father, we bow before you today with your word fresh in our thoughts. Lord, you jar us with these things. You don't leave us satisfied with darkness. You don't want us just to sit here and to live here in darkness. But you intentionally initiated the light. And I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad that you shown to me the truth so that I might know you. And I might receive Christ as Savior. Lord, there might be somebody among us right now who needs that. They've listened intently and now their hearts are warmed and the Holy Spirit's drawing them to you. I pray that they might come to know Christ as Savior. Only you could do that, Father, and we plead with you to do so. Lord, for probably the majority of those who are here today, they know Christ as Savior. And we all just kind of are in awe of all this. That you would save us. That you would love us. That you would comfort us. That you would establish us into a relationship with you like we know. This is a season of rejoicing for us. We sing with the angels. How great it is that you have done these things. We rejoice in that. And yet at the same time we know those who don't know you. And it breaks our heart 
just to think about those who don't know you. Lord, we come before you and plead that your spirit may have his way in and among us today, in our families, in our homes, where we work, where we live. Lord, may people see the truth, see the light, and come to know Jesus as Savior. Show us that great, miraculous work that you do. And give us another cause to praise you this time of year. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.